Thanks. I, I put all those words up because I think they're actually the key words that I'm going to be talking about and that are running through this whole issue around food and what's been happening uh, and focusing on Brexit. So first I want to talk a bit about the background on food policy and how the idea of food security globally has changed uh, since the mid-70s. And then uh, I'll talk a bit more about the uh, Fabian Commission on Food and Poverty, which I ended up chairing, much to my surprise if you'd have asked me in the 1970s if I'd be chairing a commission on food and poverty in the UK. And then it will be more reflections and speculation in relation to Brexit, because I'm not sure how much more anyone else can do at the moment. Um, so what is food policy? Um, the OECD in 1981 came up with this definition, which I slightly modified, but it's about influencing sets of relationships and activities. And it's those things that interact and determine what's produced, how much is produced, butter mountains or wherever, by what method things are produced, and for whom food is produced, and how it's distributed, and the, the framework in which consumption patterns are set. So food policy is quite complicated. And actually, in the mid-1970s, I started a journal uh, with a company called IPC, Science and Technology Press. I'd add in a couple more points. Not only had we joined the European Com Economic Community in 73, but there'd been a massive energy crisis in 73 with the oil price rise, which drove the economic problems. Also, there'd been a massive food crisis in the early 70s with reports of famines from around the world, particularly from Africa. But also, the Russians had cornered the, Amer the, the grain market and the, the Americans had changed their political stance on allowing the Russians to uh, buy grain. So food was a really big issue. And the first World Food Summit happened in 1974. So one reason food, I think, would have been quite... The publishers saw an opportunity to even produce a journal on food policy, looking at the political economy of food. And the other element that we've tended to forget is it was also a time after independence for most of the former colonies, and they were demanding and not getting a new international economic order to bring them out a more equal world, which was a less uh, unfair world in the distribution of wealth and power. And they didn't get that. The World Food Summit in 1974 focused uh, food security definition as this, about being the availability at all times of adequate world food supplies of basic foodstuffs, by which they mean the grains, to sustain a steady expansion of food consumption and to offset fluctuations in production and prices. So you can see some reasons why people would think Europe was quite good, because it is about managing it, having real stocks. There was a lot of discussion about holding global food stocks, because when there ain't any food, it doesn't matter what financial instruments you've got, if there's no real food anywhere to be had, people starve, prices go up, volatility happens. Um, some of the things they wanted to happen did, others didn't. So, but that's a very much focus narrowly on producing enough and having it available. By the, I'm having to jump in lots of periods because there's a lot of material that we really need to think about. If we look ahead um, to the early 90s when there was a follow-up uh, summit, and I was involved with the FAO in the World Food Day booklet, which was focusing on how do you create a well-fed world. And one of the things we discussed 
with a lot of the people in FAO and the specialists was, could we come up with a simple two-pager that would give people everything to have a sense of what food security is about? And a simple definition didn't do it. What we came up with, sorry you can't read them all, was the whole range of ingredients that really matter for the place that you're talking about, whether it's a household or a country, because they range from the gender distribution of power and how food is dealt with in a household to exchange rates, something that, as you'll of course know, has been very important post-Brexit. I mean, if the euro collapses or the pound collapses, the price of food goes up. So a whole range of things come together to determine whether a household or a country or a planet is food secure of the population. Um, by the time we get to the early 2000s, um, the definition that's being used in FAO uh, to think of, and the World Bank to think about food security is widened to be in a situation that exists when everyone at all times have physical, social and economic access to fish sufficient, safe and nutritious food that meets their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy life. So we've now brought in a much wider range of things to understand why food matters and what food security is about. Generally, they use four words, accessibility, availability, affordability, and sometimes the term utilization. In other words, are you healthy enough to be able to utilize the stuff you put in your mouth, or are you suffering from diarrhea and other diseases which mean you won't actually utilize the food you have? What this definition misses is the absence of fear. Because if you live in a state of food insecurity, you, are, you have to cope with the daily fear of can you eat? Can you get through the hungry season if we're talking about somewhere in a developing country? But there are two big things missing from this definition. It says nothing about the farming systems through which our food is produced and the long-term sustainability. And neither does it say anything about power. So, you also had, as the 2000s went on, and the uh, uh, disbanded Sustainable Development Commission uh, talked about having sustainable food systems, where you're very clear about what the goal is. It's having enough food for everyone to be fed sustainably, equitably, and healthily, and that still addresses those key needs for availability, affordability, and accessibility, but which is also diverse, ecologically sound, and resilient and that it builds upon the capacities and skills necessary for future generations. That's worth remembering when the average age of farmers is now around 60. And everywhere you go in the world, if you ask farmers do they want their children to become farmers, the general answer is no. But that still didn't deal with this issue of power. Who can decide? It isn't governments, actually, that set the prices of food today. It's large corporate actors, um, some of them involved in the production side and some of them commanding the distribution side. And governments set some aspects of the frameworks. And so you had this development in, two, in 1996 onwards to think about the idea of food sovereignty coming initially out of uh, uh, South uh, America but spreading globally. And that's about the rights of peoples to healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods and their right to define their own food and agriculture systems. So now you're now seeing some elements about a globalization that's promoting one kind of food system globally versus diversity becoming uh, crystallized in movements challenging uh, whether that's the right way to go. 
And I would argue that I think most people would say, well, you want a food system that delivers a whole range of different things. Depending where you are, you'll put an emphasis on different aspects of this. You want the food you eat to be safe. You want supplies to be continuously there, secure. But you want sustainable. You want sufficient and nutritious and healthy diets. Diets, not one, but lots of different diets. And that has to be met equitably. Now, our current global food system completely fails to meet these objectives, with the number of hungry people still about 800 million, and the number of people now suffer from diseases, non-communicable diseases that are diet-related and dying from them even more. It's 1.5 to 2 billion, depending on which measures you look at. So we have a food system that has a lot of significant challenges. And food, in the, six, in the 70s when we started food policy, for the elites in the rich world, basically food policy was an issue for poor countries. It wasn't an issue for them, with a few exceptions of Finland and, and, and the Norwegians and, the, uh, and to some degree the Dutch. Um, but it was seen as something that was a problem that had to be faced for developing countries, not for something for the rich world. But that has changed. Um, and that is where I think we have to think about these issues of power and control and risks and benefits. Because what has become clearer over the years is issues about who has what power to control the bit of the action in the food system. Who carries the risks from the changes that happen? Who gets the benefits? Whether it's from what you use land for, whether it is uh, the risks of introducing a new technology and who will get uh, the benefits from that and whether the risks will fall on the public um, and so on. All of those things have become much more important to think about. And this is where I cut out my entire talk about the food system, so you'll be pleased to know about that. But that is a really important element to think about. And it's interesting to think about control. A lot of the Brexit stuff was talking about control. I found this really getting our control back. In a country where the control is thought about in a very narrow terms, where one of the national icons breakfast cereals is owned by the Chinese government, uh, where uh, another national icon uh, chocolate is owned by an American corporation, where decisions that decide what happens in a country and what, uh, who's employed, what kind of marketing and advertising happens, are not in any sense in control within that polity very often. So there's a very confusing set of ideas that are being thrown around in this Brexit debate, very narrowly focused on ideas of sovereignty that don't make terribly much sense. Also, the terms used of free trade, which while they may make sense in the 19th century, I'm not sure make any sense in the 21st century. Even the founding director of the World Trade Organization said this is not a free trade organization. It is a rules-based trading organization. And all the arguments we're having about what are the rules, in whose interest do they operate, who has the power to set those rules, who gets the benefits from the exercise of the rules that have been set, and who carries the risks within that. So that's a kind of bit of background I think we need to think about before we kind of speculate a bit more and think about the implications of Brexit on the food system. Um, now, as I said, I was quite astounded um, a couple of years ago to be asked if I would chair an independent commission set up by the Fabian Society to look at the consequences of the UK food system for people living in poverty and how we help create a fairer food system. 
We deliberately did not call this a, a Commission on Food Poverty because we felt that that very narrowed the focus of, the, of thinking about what the problem was. Because the problem is not uh, simply one that's focused on food. It's about how the food system operates and how that affects people in poverty. It was hosted, as I say, by the Fabian Society and the Esme Fairburn Foundation paid for it. It was independent and it wasn't party political. We had um, people who worked for the food industry in the past, health people, environmental, uh, union people, uh, and so on, um, and dinner ladies who now, uh, a whole mix of people on the commission. And what we decided in the end to talk about was household food insecurity. Rather than talking about food security, which even the FAO doesn't use in its annual report, it brings out a report on the state of food insecurity. What matters for households here is whether they have the ability to acquire or consume an adequate quality or sufficient quantity of food in socially acceptable ways or the uncertainty that one will be able to do so. As that was a way of helping to think about what was happening. So when we uh, had a whole set of evidence hearings uh, covering different aspects of the food system, health, environment, um, working conditions, culture and social aspects. Remember, food, and we've heard aspects of this, is deeply culturally and socially embedded uh, in our societies and, and what food means both as a, to us and individuals, in, in families, in, in different kinds of groups with different affiliations, religious, political and so on. Is we came up with an interim report called A Recipe for Inequality. This, all the evidence sessions, the background papers, and our final report are all available on that website to download, and you can have a look at them afterwards. Um, but what you find is quite a shocking situation in Britain today, and the figures we have don't do justice to helping to understand it, but they give you a clue. Disposable income for the lowest 20% of our population has consistently gone down in recent years, from the mid-90s to the early 2012, 13, 14s. And those on the lowest incomes are losing the most. Whilst it's true that the spending on food on average in the home has gone down to about 9% now, the food spending of the poorest group, and you need to go down to the 5% the level, not this 20%, it's very misleading, is 16 to 35% of income, or in some of disposable income. And childhood obesity is still rising in the lowest income households, despite some elements of improvement in a wider population. And the things that we've seen that the increasing power of retailers dominating the food system and competing between a few of them has put a lot of pressure on the supply chain and how food is produced and the wages and terms and conditions in it, although it has kept prices of some things down. But most retailers have three ranges. They have the cheap stuff, the middle-of-the-line stuff, and the expensive posh stuff that you wanted to buy because there's a bigger profit margin on that. It's the three basic ranges you'll find in the retailers. If you look, the value lines, the average stuff, and then the stuff you really taste the difference or we love it or whatever they call it. Um, and that has really brought about huge changes within this system. In our final report, which we called Hungry for Change, um, we reflected too more on our 
the reality of life for those on the lowest incomes. And our expert group that we commissioned were not academics or researchers. They were actually a group of people who live in poverty in Salford. Um, and we talked with them throughout our process about what people were saying and what their experience was. Um, and if you look at the evidence, you find that for those on the lowest income, people in this country today are skipping meals to make sure their children can get fed. You working in a food bank, sir, I think you will know a lot of this. People are squeezing their food budget because it's the most flexible bit. You get thrown out of your house if you don't pay the rent or the mortgage. You have to pay for uh, the electricity and gas and so on. Um, and people are having to make economically rationalistic decisions of prioritizing calories over nutrients. You can eat, you can fill your belly up with cheap food, uh, with combinations of cheap fat and sugar and salt, which your kids will eat easily. Uh, or, and it is more expensive to buy a healthier diet, even if you can access those materials, because within a half a mile radius of a walking radius of many people's houses, there's nowhere actually to buy fresh fruit and vegetables. And food banks that we've seen grow in Britain, and the idea that we have food banks is, again, something I think any of us in the 70s would have found a bizarre idea, um, is that none of our expert group have actually used them. Sorry, I forgot to press the buttons. Because there's a whole set of issues about using a food bank. Evidence from Canada says about one, in f one of out of four people who need to use it actually use it. There are stigma issues. There are shame. There's, there's actually all your power and control is taken about. It's the antithesis of the so-called consumer society choice where you can choose what you eat. You're dependent upon the range of things offered and sometimes what people are chucking a bin at the supermarket at the end. Although attempts are being made to make those more healthy. So there are means generally of a last resort. Often people will go hungry, turn to family and friends, go into debt, build up debt, or eat stuff they know isn't good for them. But actually, it's not measured. So we don't know how many people are suffering from household food insecurity in the UK. We have some measures. Food bank use is used as a proxy, but it's a very poor proxy. Um, and it only refers to a certain subsection of the potential people involved in household food insecurity. The other thing that we generally felt was over the time, and not just the last government, but a number of governments have tended to get it wrong for thinking about food and our food policy. Um, they've kind of outsourced responsibility to various voluntary deals. We see food banks rise as a symptom of a food system that has real problems. And it's very clear from talking to the charities themselves that they can't address the root causes. These are sticking plasters. Um, and the business actions that we've seen tend to be too piecemeal voluntary, and they don't affect a link between low income and poor diet-related health. We have a real, and um, the Marmot Commission pointed this out in Britain, if you're in a ABCD class uh, in the old class descriptions, you live longer, you live healthier, you have fewer periods of morbidity at the end of your life. If you're in the poorest in this, you'll live less time and you will have poorer health outcomes and a lot of that will be linked to diet. Another thing is moral exhortations are meaningless to people. Uh, a lot of people know how to cook, they haven't got the option of doing it. If you have to rely on a gas meter that costs you more because the poor pay a premium for things they access, um, it's not an option um, if people can't actually afford to eat healthily. 
And that really takes you into the issues around the distribution of wealth and power within a society and whether people get enough wages to live well and what the demands are on the income that they have. Again, going back to discussions that happened in the 19th century. I think we came across three major tensions within this food system of ours that have to be addressed long term if we're not to have a population that suffers from non-communicable diseases and obesity, which causes massive personal health problems and massive health costs. And that's health issues. We don't have diets that are basically the right healthy mix. Secondly, often the poorest people in the world, in rural areas, and the poorest people in Britain are working in the food sector. They're small farmers, if they're in developing countries, or they're landless laborers working fields, or they may be packing some stuff in your supermarket on a zero hours contract. One food bank was telling us that a considerable percentage of their users actually work for a major food supplier. And the other element we have is that the sustainability of our system, which has focused very much on just producing more bulk commodities of relatively few foodstuffs. Remember, about five products consist of the 75% of our calorie intake, wheat, rice, maize, potatoes, and so on in the world when we've got 7,500 things we could eat. has been a very narrowing. And our production system, as the evidence from the UK champion on food security, Tim Benton, said, our food system is not fit for purpose in the 21st century. It may have been good for us for 40 or 50 years using industrial inputs and everything. But if we look at the challenges of climate change, managing sustainability in our soils, etc., we have faced considerable challenges. Now, all of those things will impact on what you pay for food. But of course, what actually farmers get for food in Britain, I think, and I'm just put, trying to remember the numbers, it's about nine billion that goes to farmers out of the 109 billion we spend on food, um, and 200 billion in total. Um, we, I can look up figures for you after. Um, but at the actual basic farm price for food, what they're selling and what you buy is very, very different. So it's where the money goes along the line is very important. Oh, that was Tim Benton's uh, quote uh, about this. So when we came to think about the actions that we'd like to see, we thought there were five key principles that we thought most people could agree on that everyone in Britain, actually I would say everyone in the world, should have secure access to nutritious, sustainable food they can afford, and nobody should live in a state of household food insecurity. Secondly, we feel that food banks and other forms of charitable food provision should become unnecessary by 2020. People working in them are doing a great job of trying to cope with a problem, but they can't solve it. Thirdly, decent work is the best way of achieving sustainable food security for most households, but the social security system also has an important role to play for many, both in and out of work. We can discuss what decent work means. It may not mean a zero-hours contract where one, one week you'll earn for eight hours and the next for 48 hours, and you've no knowledge between the two. That you have to start looking at how we bring the link, break the links between low income and diet-related ill health. Absolutely central. Um, and finally, that people on low incomes have to be protected should price rises and other potential negative consequences for them 
that will arise from the actions we're going to need to take to deal with the environmental, health and workforce challenges of the food system are taken. And those are often buried in the discussions we have. We have to face up to these challenges. We came up with 14 recommendations. I'm not going to put them all. They were grouped into a set of areas. One of them is around law and legal frameworks about realizing the right to food. Another one is about actually knowing what the levels of household food insecurity are, so that you have a measure to say, well, it's getting better or it's getting worse. Thirdly, and these are kind of more to do with government structures about incomes, low pay, benefits, addressing the poverty premium. Um, others are about action on public health, sugar, advertising, sustainability. And actually, at a local level, seeing more food access and local food action plans, which puts power into local areas and local communities. And there is a lot of stuff going on in food in Britain. That's the kind of two backgrounds I wanted to give before going off into a much more speculative discussion and reflection. Unlike 1975, unlike the 1840s, there was almost no discussion of food or farming or food security in the Brexit debates. Um, the people you might expect did have debates and discussions. Uh, at, uh, there's this uh, paper produced for the 80th Livery Company of the City of London, the Worshipful Company of Farmers on Agricultural Implications of Brexit. I guess not many of you saw this as home reading. Um, the likes of people that at least three of you here, I think, will be dealing with, Tim Lang and others, produced a paper on food at the UK and the EU, Brexit or Remain. Um, by the way, interesting figure, who do you think is the second top recipient of EU subsidies in all countries from 1997 to 2013? Someone give me a guess. Who? No, actually, correct. Tate and Lyle at 594 million euros. So when you talk about the EU and the cap actually going to farmers, it doesn't actually get to a lot of the farmers it's supposed to be the rat. And the people who objected to a cap on the amount of, sorry, it's difficult to use, isn't it? Uh, a limit on the amount of money you'd get from the EU if you were a farmer because you owned lots of land, guess who? The British government who objected to having a cap on the amount of uh, money you might get under that. So. Before, and I rang around lots of people I know and said, look, in all the talks you had, was anybody talking about food? Hardly, no, basically. It virtually did not figure. The one meeting I'm told uh, that uh, could even be the only meeting that focused on public meeting was held in Manchester with the Food Ethics Council and the Kingling Trust. Um, and, and we had a speaker from Scotland who said to us, you know, never mind the substance of this debate, the time frame you've got for making this decision is insane. Three months is not big enough to make a decision, informed decision. In Scotland, we had two and a half years of debate. By the end, people on a pub and in a bus were debating on full fiscal autonomy and what this meant and that meant. Because they had, you can't sustain a rhetorically based campaign like we had over two years. You actually have to get into substance. And a lot of this debate never got into substance. And it's also very clear now, no one's got an idea quite what to do about it. Um, so that is pre-vote. Food, farming, 
the implications of absolutely one of the core peace objectives of setting up the European Union, and I think we should remember this is a peace project, not an economic project, a continent that's fought each other for a thousand years and more, with hardly more than 10 or 20 years of peace in that period, um, was, all, was about linking people across. Uh, so when people talk about it in a very narrow economics protectionist way, I think we have to think beyond that to think about what is it and how does food help us think about having peace and security in a world. Uh, and I think that thing was all completely missing out of the debate. Now, if we look post-Brexit, what has been uh, happening? Well, as you'd expect, the different interest groups are lining up to say what they'd like. Some would like to see an end to a lot of the regulations that have appeared that have secured either workers' rights or environmental things. Um, others are starting, and you heard this, uh, the CPRE, I think was mentioned earlier, the, um, the National Trust, the uh, Council for the Protection of Rural England, and others are starting to say, actually, this is our opportunity to start to address some of those problems I talked about around health, sustainability, and fair working terms and conditions for those who produce our food, whether it's in Britain or around the world. And that is an opportunity to rethink our food system and our role in the world in promoting fair, sustainable, and healthy food systems. Um, so now it is about can we turn this into an opportunity that is beneficial both for the Brits and actually more generally globally. So there's starting to be materials you can look at. Tim Lang and others are starting to think about it. There is work going on on the follow-up to the Fabian Commission on raising the challenges that we face in ending hunger in the UK as a grassroots-based activity. However, what do the signs tell us? Well, I have to say I'm worried. When I read what is, I quote, childhood obesity, a plan for action, unquote, it didn't feel like it. This is a very much delayed, much fought over, this should have been out months and months ago when Cameron was there, supposed proposal for how we tackle one of the biggest challenges for the future health of people in this country. And as the Guardian headline put it over a set of letters, one of which is mine, UK's sad lack of ambition in tackling obesity. This does not augur well for who's got what power to influence government policy in tackling this kind of challenge, because nothing is said about advertising, nothing is said about the two major things that all the evidence and Public Health England's reports say that you need to do if you're going to do it. We have a new, I'm told, allegedly, uh, Secretary of International Development who doesn't believe in international development. And yet, if we're going to look at how we're demonstrating by taking up the challenge to rethink our food and farming systems, that is something that we have to do, not just in the UK, but globally, and not export a model that is problematic, whether that's a dietary pattern model, a, a consumption pattern model, or a production pattern model. So this is a time of lots of opportunities, lots of challenges. Our governments, and in fact all the world's governments almost, signed up to these, by and large, wonderful sustainable development goals, which apply to every country in the world, not just the developing countries. 
So I think we have to start connecting the rhetoric which our governments have signed up to about ending hunger, period, no poverty, period, good health and well-being. Aren't those all connected? Affordable and clean energy, industrial innovation and infrastructure. All of these be life below water, life on land, climate action. All of those things connect around food. Um, so I don't think our debate on food should be narrowed to whether it's protectionist or whether it's free trade. It has to be whether it's in our long-term human interest for developing peaceful, sustainable societies and where food is at the heart for every society in the world. It's an opportunity, but it's also a major challenge for those who see, as usual, their vested interest in getting one set of rules that suits them, where they get the benefits, could have a bigger say than we'd like. So I hope that you can uh, get involved in that, uh, not just as an academic interest or an interesting understanding and insight from history, but recognizing we are creating the history that your children will write about us. Uh, the stuff on my website, I've given you a thing on the Food Systems Academy. Please use those talks if you've got ideas for others to get involved. But this is about helping people get engaged today in shaping what that future will be around food. Thank you very much.